0: To Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Uh, We've gotten a lot of feedback from the past couple of podcasts dealing with the differences between Calvinists and traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptists, especially in the area of limited atonement or definite atonement, particular redemption. And so it's really uh, caused me to think a little bit more deeply about this whole issue of the atonement. And I have a special guest today, in our podcast, and that is our youth pastor here at Emanuel Baptist Church, Andrew Hayes. Andrew, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so um, the reason I've asked Andrew to be on the podcast today is because he's um, been dealing with this issue um, of looking at the atonement, Um, a lot of different things have been happening personally, um, just the things that he's been seeing on Facebook, and um, he's done actually a personal study on the atonement that's kind of stretched him to go look at these issues. So Andrew, tell us just a little bit about yourself first, and then tell us kind of why you launched on this journey of studying the atonement.
1: Right. Well, I, as Pastor Son said, I'm the youth pastor here at Emanuel. Uh, I've been at Emanuel for the last uh, f- over five years now and just completed my uh, degree at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, Gateway Seminary now. I got my Master of Divinity there uh, in I guess have grown with kind of a, a love of theology. One of the first theology books I read was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I didn't know that it was called theology then, but I grew to to love it and uh, had a lot of interest in it. And I went to a few b- different Bible colleges, and one of the very interesting things is uh, some of my roommates, some of my friends, uh, different individuals who I've known uh, have I guess I would say seem to kind of been pulled away from what I think is the biblical teaching on different issues such as the atonement. And for example, uh, one of my friends posted this on Facebook and it just got me thinking along these lines. It says this, as evangelicals, our basic gospel proposition to a hurting world has gone something like this. Humans were originally good, but you are bad because your ancient fathers ate the wrong fruit. You are desperately in need of help and an enemy of God, but don't worry. God, your enemy, has made a way for you to come back to him. If you just say this prayer and mean it, you will be safe from God when he comes back to take it out on those who don't do what he says. Doesn't this just make a hurting person want to run straight to God? Sarcasm is what he says. How is this presentation good news at all? When confronted with the challenge from rationalism and enlightenment, the Western church chose two ways out. Liberalism and fundamentalism. And it's very interesting. Uh, he goes on in other, other, diff- other different posts basically to say that the atonement or Christ dying on the cross is more of an example of God's love r- rather than Jesus dying a- in our place for our sins. So the cross then is just an example of, of love and not so much a substitutionary death of Christ. Okay, so
0: we at Emmanuel, we as uh, Reformed theologians, we, we are in the biblical stream that believe in the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it may be helpful before we define the penal substitutionary atonement to maybe go over some of these different um, theories of the atonement that have been throughout church history. But one of the other things, Andrew, I think that was interesting just a few weeks ago, uh, Lifeway, uh, along with Ligonier's R.C. Sproul's ministry, came out with the um, state of theology in the American um, culture, I guess, and a lot of questions. I think right. I think they talked to like over 3,000. I can't remember. It was yeah,
1: yeah, a this, large
0: pooling. It was, it was a pretty major, um, back in April, I think. And So share with us some of the findings that you found interesting from that study.
1: Right. Uh, so there's a couple that I, I found really interesting that are really related to this issue. Uh, probably the one that is most surprising is uh, the vast majority of Americans, including evangelicals, disagree with this statement, even the smallest sin deserves eternal condemnation. The vast majority of Americans are saying no that's that 's not right um, that 's not correct and also what 's interesting and th- this was a statement that they gave jesus is, jesus christ 's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could be could, could remove the penalty of my sin. Forty percent agree strongly, which is pretty good, a little higher than I imagined but i would there's also forty percent who disagree with that statement so
0: Which makes you wonder, the way it's worded, Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice. Is there another sacrifice out there that would atone for your sins?
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the other 40% want to keep their options open. Okay. So I just, you know, and it's interesting that that, those are the the statements. It's almost split in half. And, you know, I think for the most part there seems to be some some confusion over why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Um, Was it for for love? Was it for um, our sin? Why in the world did he die on the cross?
0: Well, that brings us into some of these theories of the atonement that have been around in church history. And probably the earliest one that was promoted by Origen is the the ransom paid to Satan theory. Uh, This is the whole idea that, you know, Satan has the keys to the kingdom and they, they were given to him when Adam fell. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it was really a ransom paid back to to, to get the keys back from Satan, which really has no founding in Scripture.
1: No. <laughs> no, not, not really. That was probably the biggest criticism for Origen, that she couldn't find it. And then it's kind of the implication is, does Satan have any legitimate claim on people?
0: Right, it denies the sovereignty of God, and really some modern-day adherents of this is really like Kenneth Copeland and the Word Faith Movement. You really see that whole ransom to Satan and Jesus being reborn in hell to try to, I mean, all, the, all that wacky stuff. And so, I mean, we can pretty much outright reject. Um, and Origen was questionable in his theology anyway. I don't know if we want to get a lot of our theology from Origen um, in, in the early church. Um, the, the next big um, theory was produced by Peter Abelard in the 1100s, This is called the moral influence theory, and basically what he argued was that there was no penal substitution or wrath to be appeased, but that Christ's death was really God's way of showing humanity how much he loved us, and that God was willing to suffer for us. And so the cross is a big example of love and of sacrifice. It's supposed to endear us to a loving God, but it doesn't account for wrath, guilt, penal substitution. And in this view, the highest attributes of God are His love and compassion, not His wrath or His justice or His holiness. And and, and I think this is probably the view that you're seeing from some of your friends that that used to maybe hold a penal substitution or adopting the moral influence theory.
1: Right, yeah. And that's, uh, I would say that that tends to be the case. There seems to be sort of a reaction against uh, God having any sort of wrath. Uh, If we say that God has wrath towards sin, they seem to want to move away from that because they don't, I I think it's, I'm going to give them the best intentions, I think it's because they're being seeker-driven to the point that they're moving out of God's wrath because they like, well, that's not appealing to non-Christians, so we got to kind of tweak our theology so it's more appealing. So I think it's out of maybe a good intention to uh, convert others, but they're rejecting God's wrath, which is a clear teaching of Scripture.
0: Right, and any time that you elevate one view of God's attributes over another, you kind of get into dangerous territory because God's all of His attributes are, are, are part of ontologically who He is as God. We can't pit one against the other and say, no, God's more loving than He is holy, or He's more wrathful than He is loving. All of His attributes are perfect.
1: Right, and, and you know, it's interesting. It's precisely because uh, this moral influence theory that, you know, Christ dying on the cross is an example of love. Oftentimes, penal substitutionary theory people get accused of divine child abuse. But when I hear this, it's like, well, there could have been other ways God could have proved his love.
0: And speaking of divine child abuse, that, you know, that was back, Steve Chalk and Alan Mann uh, wrote a book, The Lost Message of Jesus. It came back in 2003. And Steve Chalk made these statements, quote, In reality, penal substitution in contrast to other substitutionary theories, doesn't cohere well with either biblical or early church thought. Although penal substitution isn't as old as many people assume, it is actually built on pre-Christian thought. I claim that penal substitution is tantamount to child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed Though the sheer bluntness of this imagery might shock some in truth, it is only a shark unmasking of the violent pre-Christian thinking behind such theology, End quote.
1: <laughs> Wow, well, you know, that's uh, no doubt where he lies on <laughs> on uh, penal substitutionary theory, and it's, like I said, it's interesting, because they'll promote other views, um, you know, like we'll, and we'll talk about a few more, but... I don't understand why it only applies to penal substitution sure. in theory. And, and you
0: see, like, this is more from the liberal theologians, um, the social gospel, that they don't want to deny that Jesus died on the cross. They just don't want to talk about wrath. And, and it just popped in my head, I think it was a couple of years ago, that the PCUSA um, changed the wording of the hymn in Christ Alone right. because they were offended by, you know, uh, the wrath of God being satisfied that they felt that was too... Uh, too much of a penal substitutionary view, and so I, th- I can't re- even remember how they changed the wording, but they voted to, to take wrath out of that um, hymn that, that we really love. I mean, the Gettys have written that, and it, and it talks about propitiation, and so they were offended by propitiation, so they right. take that idea of anything wrath, to, it, related to wrath, out of that hymn.
1: You know, and it's interesting, because in, in a sense, there is some elements of truth, which is why there's kind of a ring of truth to it, because does the cross, is the cross a demonstration of God's love? Yes, it is. Exactly. But it's more than that.
0: (laughs) Well, and when we get into some text, we'll see that um, both wrath and love, as the old Puritans would say, wrath and love kiss at the cross. They come together in this perfect marriage. Right. Um, So we've got the ransom paid to Satan, which we find really no biblical evidence for. That was an early church view by origin. Um, You see the moral influence theory um, articulated by Peter Abelard in the 1100s. And then you've got the example theory, this came around in the 1500s. This was the, what was called the Socinian uh, controversy. Um, they denied that God's justice needed to be satisfied by substitutionary atonement. And really what their view is, is that Christ's death simply provides us with an example of how we should trust and obey God like Jesus did, even if it means that we die. So the immoral influence view um, was to lead us to truly appreciate God's love but it's really to lead us to ethical living. Almost like we look at the example of Jesus dying, we look at the example of Jesus pouring his love out, we look at the example of the sacrificial aspect of it, and we're to look at that as a great example of how we're to be sacrificial, how we're to love. So it's more of an ethic of how we're to live that comes out of the cross as opposed to resting in the finished work of what Christ did on our behalf.
1: That's really interesting. It's kind of, I guess, in that sense then the salvation then becomes entirely what you and i do you know because it's we have to be encouraged by the cross to do good works
0: yeah it's an ethic of what we have to do as opposed to trusting in the finished work of christ um the governmental view i mentioned this on the last podcast it's more the arminian view but this was articulated by hugo grotius in the early 1600s again this denies that wrath has to be propitiated um god is a god of justice and um He can forgive sin, but the atonement's not an actual propitiation of God's wrath. It's really a way to show that God's laws have been broken and there needs to be a penalty. And so Christ suffers to show that God is holy and His law must be upheld, but it's not a substitutionary atonement in place of sinners per se. And so this is really almost a view of um, classical Arminianism. Christ did not die particularly in the place of any particular individuals, but he did die to pay the penalty for sin in hopes that one day when confronted with the gospel, you'll use your free will to choose Christ and then the benefits of the atonement will become effectual for you. But in reality, when Christ died on the cross, he did not die for anybody in particular. It was more of a hypothetical atonement hmm. that, made, that made redemption possible based upon if we accept the gift. So the gift was paid for, right. and it was not paid for anybody in particular. It was just generally paid for. Once you receive the gift, then it becomes effective for you. But there's really, and I don't know if a lot of Arminians believe that when, when, when Armenians use the term substitutionary atonement, they're really denying their theology because they do not believe in a substitutionary atonement. They believe in an atonement for sin, but not a substitutionary atonement where Christ actually died in that particular place of any individual sinner.
1: Right, and I think the with that view of the atonement, potentially Christ died for nobody in particular. Exactly, it could apply to nobody.
0: Exactly, like, hypothetically, um, Jesus could have died, and nobody would have come to faith in Him.
1: Right, and that would that would seem to kind of really downplay the the sovereignty of God, the the power of the cross. It actually seems to take out of that that meaning that the cross actually did something.
0: Right, and and I was listening the other day to something. um, I can't remember if it was a blog on SBC Today or some um, uh, traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist, but they were talking about the atonement. Oh, I know what it was. It, yeah, right now on SBC Today, there's this big argument where some pastor um, had had tried to call David Platt at the IMB and asked David Platt if he believed in limited atonement, and David Platt didn't return his call or his or the secretary wasn't willing to answer. And so there's this big brouhaha that David Platt believes in limited atonement. And he's not answering the questions, and wh- what the argument was is that they were saying that um, limited atonement or particular redemption is really a slap in the face to God's love. And the um, it basically um, limits the effectiveness of what, God, what uh, of what the cross did, and we'd say, you know, really, the effectual or definite atonement actually shows probably more love because Christ actually accomplished something on the cross as opposed to making it potential.
1: Right, and and it's and it's like uh, as if God is weak or that isn't all that concerned or about the salvation of people and it's why would you have someone die for the potential salvation of people instead of actually affecting that salvation
0: right So, Andrew, what is penal substitutionary atonement? It's a theological term we throw around, but it comes from biblical theology. But if you were to define it for our listeners, how would you define penal substitutionary atonement?
1: Well, I think it's pretty helpful just to break down the words. You know, the penal meaning penalty, uh, the penalty for, for sin, substitutionary in our place, and then atonement. So Christ dying in our place for the penalty of our sins. I think that's could be a very easy definition of it. So just break down the words and it's not not too hard.
0: Yeah, and sometimes we use big words in theology. You know, penal, when you think about the penal system or the penitentiary, it deals with judgment. It deals with punishment. And so what we're saying when penal substitutionary atonement is that on the cross, there actually was a punishment that Jesus Christ endured in his body on the cross. It wasn't hypothetical. It wasn't, you know, an example. He literally was punished on the cross. Substitutionary in our place. It was done for people, for particular people. What's, what's the word atonement mean? That's a word we throw around, atonement?
1: Right. You know, there's, there's a variety of meanings to it. It can mean, like, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it can have kind of a sense of covering Yes. Um, in particular, and it can also have the idea that it's a complete washing. You know, so it's a covering, it's a, it's a washing, a cleansing. Um, or a payment
0: mm-hmm. and it could be an expiation in the sense it's a taking away of sin and it's also a propitiation in the absorbing of sin so there's a lot of things wrapped up in the atonement
1: right yeah it's kind of a catch-all word for talking about how God how our sin is dealt with
0: okay very good so what we want to do on this podcast and we may not get through all of it we want to do a biblical theology of Penal substitutionary atonement. And what we mean by biblical theology is um, we want to trace how this theme shows up from Genesis to Revelation. Um, we, we see types and shadows in the Old Testament of this. And so um, a lot of this work is what Andrew himself has done personally to go through these passages in his personal study, and so I'm going to let him do a lot of the commentary and a lot of the the teaching and and observations, and I'll kind of chime in, but um, let's just start in the book of Genesis, Andrew. Where, Where do we first see a picture of substitutionary atonement or the idea of God dealing with sin in some way in the Bible?
1: Okay, so Genesis 1 and 2, we have humanity created in God's image in a perfect relationship with God. And they are given the one command that they aren't t- to transgress, which they do in Genesis 3. They transgress God's command, they eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam and Eve sow fig leaves around themselves to cover their nakedness. Now, nakedness is kind of one of those themes for, for sin, is when we sin, we are naked, we are ex- exposed. And so they cover themselves, they attempt to cover themselves with fig leaves. And so then we have the, the curses of God in Genesis chapter 3. Then we just kind of have this, this odd kind of side comment in verse 21, and we read this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So, and, and usually we'll just blow right past that, not really pay much of attention to that. But really what we have here in Genesis 3, God kills an animal to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And so that would be an example of how God is covering, how God had an animal stand in the place of Adam and Eve to cover them, to cover their nakedness from their sin.
0: And, and, and when you go back, when you think about Adam and Eve when they were um, fashioning fig leaves, that's really the first man-made attempt to deal with guilt. So they're, they're dealing with guilt and sin and shame by trying to work themselves. It's, it's a man-made attempt to cover their guilt. They've fashioned fig leaves they're trying to cover their sin, and it doesn't work. God says in that passage, only an animal, a substitutionary atonement, a death, can truly cover you and deal with your sin. And God, monergistically, is the one that does it, um, and, and, and His grace covers Adam and Eve. So it's really a picture of grace, too, on the first couple of pages of the Bible, where God could have easily... Uh, Killed Adam and Eve, and said, "I'm starting all over with this whole human race thing. You're dead." Um, But God, in His grace, graciously covers them with an animal skins as a picture of substitutionary atonement. So that that's good.
1: Yeah, and and you know, it's following the next chapter. We have the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, and we read that Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and Cain's was not. And and the explanation we get is that Abel he brings verse four he brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And Cain just brings some grain. So in the sacrifices in Genesis chapter four, we have we have uh, Abel sacrificing an animal, uh, the best animal that he could for for his sins, presumably, and then Cain just brings some grain, and God accepts C- Abel's sacrifice and not. Cain's.
0: yeah and we often talk about how the attitude behind the sacrifice we often think you know god accepted abel's sacrifice because it was the first and he didn't accept Cain's because it was you know basically leftovers and that's true but if you go back and you read carefully that passage of scripture in verse three it says in the course of time and when you think about the hebrew there it almost lends itself to believe that there was a set time that they were to sacrifice before the lord and how would they have known what the right sacrifice would have been I'm sure, the Bible doesn't tell us this, so this is conjecture, but I'm sure their parents, Adam and Eve, told them that God had sacrificed an animal and covered them, and the appropriate way that God requires sacrifice is through the killing of an animal. And so Abel does that in the right way, with the right attitude. Cain does it in the wrong way, with the wrong attitude.
1: Right, and, and so it's not just the, the attitude, but it's also the provision that God has, has put in his law t- for that a particular atonement um, so then going forward Genesis chapter 22 he, big major chapter with substitutionary atonement I would say um, you know there's other things we could have talked about but you know when we're doing biblical theology we do have to be selective uh, but Genesis 22 we have Abraham taking up Isaac onto the mount to sacrifice Isaac to God and in this particular scene, we have Abraham ready to plunge the dagger into, into Isaac, his sacrifice, and God stops him in the middle of this sacrifice. And in the middle of this sacrifice, he stops him. He says, okay, I don't, you're, you're not going to carry through with that. And then they look around, and what do they see? They see a ram caught in a thicket. And the name of that place becomes The Lord Will Provide. So here we got Isaac, who was supposed to be sacrificed, all of a sudden, he has stopped, and God provides a ram as a substitute instead of Isaac. So, major chapter when you're when And also, this. too, when
0: you look at verse um, 13 in the Hebrew text, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, key word there, instead of his son. Right. And that word instead carries with it substitutionary atonement. Isaac was the one to be substituted, or though Isaac was the one to be sacrificed, and instead of Isaac dying, the ram died in the stead of, in the place of, for Isaac. The whole idea of substitutionary atonement.
1: Yeah, you know, in the next chapter, or in the next verse, verse 14 says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And, and so that's kind of the theme throughout this, is not only is it a substitute sacrifice. It's the Lord's provision of this sacrifice.
0: Yeah, and you see parallels with the way that Isaac walks up Mount Moriah. I mean, he's the, the the firstborn. I mean, obviously Ishmael was the firstborn, but he's the son of promise, the one and only son. He's walking up the mountain carrying wood. He's a willing sacrifice, willing to go under the knife of his father And at the last moment, a substitutionary atonement is made. You see a lot of parallels to Christ in that. Christ walked up Mount Calvary. Christ was the one and only begotten Son of the Father. Christ had wood on His back. But the big difference is, with Christ, God did not spare Him the way He spared Isaac. In a sense, God plunged the dagger into His Son, Jesus, by pouring His wrath out on Him as a substitute on the cross as our substitute and so jesus is the lamb of god who takes away our sin so you see parallels there between isaac and jesus
1: yeah and so you know that like i said that's a major chapter worth meditating on um then i guess we should probably move forward to exodus and we have the passover which i think is worth mentioning uh, when we're talking about substitutionary atonement Uh, Remember, this is the 10th plague when we we are introduced to the Passover, the first nine plagues. Basically, God has assaulted the gods of of Egypt, showing that they're really not gods. God is God. But then this 10th plague comes along, and then all of a sudden Israel has to do something. Like the previous plagues, they really didn't have to do anything. God spared them the, the result of these plagues. But now that God's going to come in judgment, Israel has to do something. So what is it that they have to do? Well, as we... As we understand, especially in Exodus chapter 12, God says, all right, what you need to do is you have to kill a lamb and spread its blood on the lentils of your doorpost. And when I see that blood on your doorpost, then I will pass over that house and spare your firstborn. And so in the Passover, we have a lamb that is slain and its blood is used to cover over Israel. And so I think that's a clear picture of how Israel's going to be spared of God's judgment. God judges the Egyptians. They didn't have that comforting, but God also, presumably, if Israel didn't have that blood, they also would have been judged.
0: Yes. I mean, in verse, In, in this is in Exodus chapter 12, um, God says to Moses in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses when you, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You've got words like destroy, strike, execute judgment. It's an issue of God's wrath being poured out against sin, but there's a covering in the blood of the Lamb that appeases or diverts God's wrath from falling upon those who are covered. Right. there's a substitute
1: right and you know paul picks up this imagery and he says christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed yeah
0: in first corinthians chapter 10 i think is where he says it.
1: yeah so i mean it's so or five first uh, corinthians chapter so five, this yeah. is a picture that the new testament authors pick up on and so that very uh big picture of the atonement in exodus then in leviticus we have a lot of pictures of the atonement Um, There's kind of two main offerings, and a lot of times there's a lot of provisions, and I know Leviticus can sometimes be a hard book to read because there's a lot of instructions on how sacrifices are going to take place. But we have two kind of types of uh, sacrifices. We have thank offerings, and we have like sin and guilt offerings. And with the guilt offerings, what you were supposed to do is you would be working with a priest, and you would lay your hands on this particular animal now, we may not understand what that means, of the laying on of hands. Like, why in the world do they have to put their hands on the animal? Well, they, that was a symbolic way to transfer one's guilt. Mm-hmm. And so one would put your hands on that animal that was to be sacrificed, and your guilt would be transferred to that animal, and that animal would be sacrificed instead of you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a picture of imputation, if you will the fact that the sins of the people were symbolically imputed to the lamb, and the, and the laying on the hands was a symbolic way of showing that the sins of the people were transferred or credited or reckoned to the substitute, the, the goat, if you will, um, on the Day of Atonement.
1: Right. And, and so that's all throughout Leviticus. You have those different provisions. And then we have something that is really important, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was one day in the life of Israel where the priest, the high priest, was able to enter into the holy of holies and make provision, make a sacrifice for the people of Israel. Now, what's interesting is we have two goats. One one goat is killed and sacrificed, and the blood of that goat uh, it is enables the priest to enter the holy of holies and to spread that blood in, in God's presence. But then we also have another goat. And the scapegoat, as we call it, where, where hands are laid on this goat, all the sins of Israel are confessed, and the goat is released into the wilderness, where presumably it will it will vanish or pass away. I don't know. We're not really told it's, it it's to go the outside the camp, yeah. outside the camp, as, the
0: Azazel, yeah, into the wilderness.
1: And so the author of Hebrews later on, and we probably not, we may not get the Hebrews on this particular podcast, but the Hebrews definitely picks up on this imagery that we have uh, in in the particular day of atonement. And, you know, it's interesting in this particular day of atonement, it was one time only the high priest could could do this. And I and this sacrifice, it was not the priest blood that allowed him to enter. It was the blood of the the ram or the the goat. That was the only reason he was able to to get into the, the presence of God is with a covering. So the high priest himself, he needed a covering.
0: Right. He, yeah. Hebrews tells us, and we'll get there, that, he, that you know, when, the, when the high priest goes in there, he had his own sins he had to atone for, as well as the sins of the people. Um, right. His, his sins had to be atoned for. So he for.
1: wasn't a perfect representative. He wasn't a perfect mediator. Right. So
0: let's, let's read. This is in um, Leviticus chapter 16. Let's pick up in verse 20. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat...
1: Yeah, so so there we have the goat carrying away those sins, and again, the imputation of that guilt, of that sin on that goat, and that goat going away, symbolically showing that their iniquities are carried away with that goat. Yet, this was a yearly thing. Right. And so every year, Yom Kippur comes up, and Israel has to, to do this.
0: Right, and, and, and interestingly enough, um, when you go back and you read the laws, especially in Leviticus and in Numbers— on the day of atonement um high-handed sins were not atoned for right only unintentional sins were atoned for so if you did a high-handed sin or a sin that was what they called an intentional sin Um, you had to get the death penalty. And so even in the day of atonement, it was not a complete atonement that would forgive every single sin. It only covered the unintentional sins of the people, not high-handed sins. So it wasn't a complete atonement even back in the Old Testament. And basically when we get to Hebrews, it talks about how when Christ came, it was a greater covenant. It was a greater atonement because it covered not just outward sins, but also the conscience. It got to the inner part of our our depravity and, and, and saved us from um, not only sins, but our sin nature. Um, this is incomplete to do that, but it is a picture, picture of expiation. Um, expiation is just a theological word, meaning a putting away. Right. Um, that when, so when that goat was put away into the wilderness, that scapegoat, it, it's a symbolic to the nation of Israel that their sins have been paid for by a substitute and they're being put far away. As far as the east is to the west, the, the psalmist would say.
1: Right, and I think this also gives us a clue the limited nature of this atonement, too, because this atonement is only for, it's for the people of Israel.
0: Oh, so you're going to bring up the limited atonement argument, are you?
1: <laughs> well, I'm just... I, it's just well, let's, it's t- there. Let's,
0: let's talk about that, because even when you go back to... We'll talk about particular redemption in, in this podcast right now. Um, when you go back to the um, Exodus and the Passover, did God give those instructions to the Egyptians?
1: No, he didn't.
0: It, was, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a substitutionary atonement provided for the Egyptians. It was only for the Israelites. Now, I've heard pastors say, you know, the Egyptians would have been saved if they would have just put blood on their doorpost. Well, that's an argument for silence, maybe, but they were not commanded to do that. It was for God's people only. And so let's talk about the Day of Atonement. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people, does he... Propitiate God's wrath or make atonement on behalf of the Amorite high priest?
1: No, it's just for the people of Israel.
0: What about the Philistines?
1: No, they are the were Egyptians, more of Israel's enemies, the
0: Moabites. The okay, so this is a particular. Even in the Old Testament is a particular redemption only for the sins of God's people, and it's symbolic. When the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would have on his um, ephod, the holy garment embedded in his chest and on his um, shoulders in stones, the actual names of the 12 tribes. And you may say, well, why are the names, doesn't he know the names of the 12 tribes when he goes in there? I mean, is that, I mean, is he he unsure? Okay, there's Judah, there's Simeon, I don't know what the names are. No, that's not the purpose. The purpose is when he goes in there, it's a visual reminder that when he looks down upon his chest, when he looks at his shoulders, he's making atonement specifically for the tribes who are named.
1: Right. Right. And you get a sense of the gracious provision this is. You know, when you think about it, Israel deserved God's wrath, and he's allowing an animal to yeah. be sacrificed in their place. I mean, it, of all the t- forms of judgment, this is a very small thing that Israel can do to appease God's wrath.
0: Yeah, and one, one thing we need to remember that even in the Passover with the Egyptians or even in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus with the, the surrounding Philistine and pagan nations, that Israel was guilty of sin they deserved wrath they deserved hell they deserved justice just as much as the Philistines the Egyptians and the Canaanites it was just that God in his grace had chosen that nation and he the nation that he chose he also provided a substitutionary atonement that he didn't provide for other nations so you can even argue in the whole setup of the choosing of Israel and their sacrificial system that whole system was limited in its scope Not in its effectiveness, because it did cover the sins of the people, but it was limited in scope. It was only limited to God's people, and it was only effective for God's people. If God had intended the atonement to be for the Amorites or be for the Egyptians, then that would have been what he prescribed, but it was only an atonement set up for his people.
1: Right. And, you know, there's obviously more things that we could talk about. Leviticus, Deuteronomy is kind of a recapitulation of that law, and so a lot of the same themes would would show up in Deuteronomy.
0: Before we, before we move on, can I just bring up one passage of Scripture that's often overlooked
1: Yes, in, relation,
0: in relationship to the atonement? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you remember the story of the beginning of 1 Samuel, Eli is the priest. And Eli is the priest that, that sacrifices at the tabernacle. Um, he's raising Samuel in the temple. But if you remember, who are Eli's two sons? He has these two worthless sons that were doing some pretty major sin. Um, His sons were doing two things. They were taking bribes at the opening of the tabernacle, and they were sleeping with prostitutes at the tabernacle. Now, if you're a priest of the Most High God, that's like you're having sex in church with prostitutes. And, and and you're just basically breaking the covenant of, of being a priest.
1: Well, and and not just that, you know, not just taking bribes, but they were also treating God's offering, the sin offering, with contempt. And what's interesting is basically it's almost as if, like, they're dipping their hands into the offering plate as it passed by. I mean, that would be the equivalent, because they would, as this animal would be sacrificed, they're... Pulling st- pulling food, they're pulling things out of it. Pulling the very best portions out for themselves, so it's like they're pulling out of the offering plate too.
0: Yeah, they're they're doing some major things. Their, their names are Hophni and Phineas. So God had given a a judgment to Eli, but it's interesting when God calls Samuel, the little boy in the temple, um, and he you know the whole story where he, he's not sure who he's listening to, and finally God speaks to him, and in the first message that God gives Samuel is to go tell Eli about the judgment I think about the weight of that you're a little boy and the first thing you have to do is go tell your mentor that your house is going to be judged and so you pick up in verse um, 13 or chapter 3 verse 12 on that day i will fulfill against eli all that i've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end and i declare to him that i'm about to punish his house forever For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And this is the key. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Ouch. (laughs) There would never be an atonement for the house of Eli. So God limits... God says, "I'm not providing an atonement for you. You have sinned so grievously; there will never be an atonement forever." Now, you may even take that all the way into the future and say, "Okay, were they saved by Christ's atonement even?"
1: I (laughs) I was going to say probably probably not, because they were not they were not believers for one; like they weren't even followers of God at being His his priests, they were serving themselves.
0: So you're saying that you can be a priest in a temple and do all these things, and are you saying these guys weren't Christians?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, it, I mean, I'm i just thinking of all the, the scandal that this would have been for, for Eli and for Israel. Actually, you have Israelites that are more righteous than their priests. Right. In, in
0: but this. it's interesting that in verse 14 that there's a, God is swearing an oath Basically, this is one of the few times you find the Bible where God says, I'm not going to atone for your iniquity forever. I'm not going to provide atonement. Now, think about, just this is just popping into my head, think about David for a moment. King right. David committed adultery, and King David committed murder. And according to Levitical law, he required the death penalty. By all intents and purposes, according to law, David should have been stoned to death for murder and adultery. And God basically, if you look at it, passed over those sins. Right. It didn't punish him. I mean, he was disciplined, but he did not have to be put to death because he was in the messianic line. That's why later on in Romans chapter 3, Paul can say God overlooked those past sins and and punished it in Christ. And so you could say that God was waiting until Christ came to, to actually punish some Old Testament sins. And so when Christ came and died, you could say that all those sins that David committed for which he should have died and was spared, those were punished in Christ on the cross. But for Eli's sons, those were not.
1: Right. And, you know, we have in Psalm 51, David's confession. You know, David says against you and you only have I sinned. And he appeals to the the mercy of God, not his justice. Because He knows if he appeals to God's justice, he's done.
0: Right. And David repented. We don't ever see Eli's sons repenting.
1: No. So speaking of the Psalms, there's a, a passage that's really interesting. In uh, Psalm 79, verses 8 and 9, says this, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. So there you have atonement and sins linked uh, in, in the very same passage. And they're saying, don't remember anymore. Don't remember our sins. Don't, don't let us be brought very low. You are our, our salvation by atoning for our sins.
0: And you've got God's compassion in there. So you do have God's love. I mean, look at the words there. Let your compassion come speedily right. for the glory of your name. Deliver us for your namesake. And so even in atonement, God is showing compassion By punishing wrath, or by punishing sin in his wrath, he's showing love for his people.
1: Right, and this psalm was written during the exilic period, which is really interesting. So they don't have that temple, that sacrificial system going on, and they're pleading for atonement, for sin. So what form is that going to look like? Because they can't go to the temple and sacrifice right now. So where are they going to go? Right. So th- I think this is very forward-looking to that time where Christ would die in our place permanently because they, they can't go to the temple and atone right now.
0: Right. Yeah, they, they knew all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the Messiah would come and that Messiah would die and atone for sins.
1: Right, so uh, that's just one example of the Psalms, but then I think it's worth looking at Isaiah because Isaiah um, is kind of, and, and sometimes is called the fifth gospel, yeah, because it's so clearly in Isaiah. So we'll pick up in in chapter six, chapter six, very important chapter in Isaiah. And what we have is we have God in all of his glory manifested to Isaiah. And Isaiah sees God in, in all of his holiness. We see in verse thirty three in verse or six, verse three says this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in Hebrew, when you want to really draw attention to something that's really, really important, what do you do? You, you repeat that word. Right, three
0: times. Right. A triad.
1: Right, and I believe, uh, you know, R.C. Sproul pointed this out. The only attribute of God that's elevated to the third degree is his holiness. Yes. And so we have God's holiness on display, and Isaiah sees all of this, and his response in verse 5 is this. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what does that word woe mean? Why do you think he uses that it's, word He's woe? calling
0: down a covenant curse upon himself, that he's deserving of God's wrath.
1: Right. So I, Isaiah, when he has this experience, this visual uh, ident- identification of God's holiness, he's like, whoa, I'm a dead man. I should be dead where I stand because I have seen God's holiness.
0: I'm lost, I'm, I'm destroyed, I am guilty. I mean, it's a, it's a major confession of guilt. It's interesting too, when, when Isaiah sees God, actually John tells us it's really Christ who he saw there. Um, when, when Isaiah sees um, God in all of his glory, does he go up and give him a high five and say, hey, you're my buddy, you're my homeboy. What does he do?
1: Oh, he, he, he's, I'm a dead man, I'm fall, probably falling to his face, just probably wanting to disappear. Yeah,
0: he's overwhelmed with his guilt.
1: Right. But then we read this, verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, let's just pause for a second and talk about this. Now, a seraphim is one of the angelic beings. Yeah, flying creature. Right. And he, he brings to Isaiah a, a coal from, from where? An altar. Wow. That's interesting, right? Because he's like, oh, he's bringing it from an altar. An altar is where you did Sacr- sacrifices. Right. So with this coal from the altar, in verse 7, we read this. He touched my mouth, this is Isaiah, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah, overwhelmed with his guilt, overwhelmed with his sin in in the uh, midst of God's holiness, and he's saying, I need to be a dead man. And then we have God making gracious provision, atoning for his sins by a coal from an altar, kind of showing the sacrifice, and then we read that his... Guilt is taken away; his sins are atoned for. And so, here in this passage, we have a, a clear identification that that sin is taken away by an atonement.
0: And that would have been very scary for Isaiah to see a flying creature coming to him with a coal towards his mouth. Um, and it also—that's the point of contact where Isaiah's sin was. What was his specific sin? He had unclean lips. So that atonement was very particular to the actual sin that was the besetting sin of Isaiah. And it's interesting, when he turned around, what would he be doing the rest of his life? He's preaching. He's going to be preaching a message. He was going to be using his mouth to declare the glories of God. And so his mouth not only needed to be atoned, but it needed to be purified so that he could go out and preach the message of really the gospel to the Israelites who weren't going to hear him anyway. It was going to be... God had already determined to plug their ears and to, to blind their eyes, which, right. which is really encouraging for a preacher. Hey, you're going to go out and preach, and nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, wow, of all calls. So Isaiah has this ama- you know, this experience with, with God, and then the very next thing, uh, God is saying, hey, who's going to be my messenger? And Isaiah's like, well, well, here I am, uh, send me. And then God says, all right, nobody's going to listen to you.
0: Yeah, I- do, you, do you ever feel like that in youth group when you're preaching? <laughs> yeah. Eyes, a- blind eyes and deaf ears. <laughs>
1: Sometimes, yes. It feels like that. (laughs) And then uh, probably the very most clear passage in Isaiah that talks about the atonement is Isaiah 53. Yes. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, it's it's well worth reading and just kind of meditating and thinking about these different verses. And we read this. We'll pick up in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him... Like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all pronouns are really important uh, sometimes we we don't pay a lot of attention to our pronouns here but when we especially verses 4 through 6 we read that this uh, suffering servant of God. We are, we're not told who he is yet. We, we know him in the New Testament to be Jesus. But when we're reading for, verses 4 through 6, we have this suffering servant who bears other people's griefs, other people's mm-hmm. sorrows, other people's sins. And he's being crushed. And who is the one who's acting this? Surprisingly, verse 4, it's God. He's the one who's smitten, he's smiting this suffering servant.
0: Yeah, when you actually look, especially at verse um, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that, that laid on him. When you look at the Hebrew, it really almost carries a violence there. It was like all of God's wrath came violently upon Christ. It's almost as if God assaulted him. Now, we need to be real careful here because it's not like God is getting... Um, sadistic glee out of propitiating his wrath on his son like it brings great pleasure to God to right. violently assault you know it please God to do that what I think it's saying is that in the whole horror of sin it was being imputed to Christ in those moments and it was justice it was it was wrath it was the full fury of God's wrath being meted out because that was the eternal plan of redemption that God the Son and God the Father agreed upon in the covenant of redemption before time that this would happen.
1: Right. And again, those pronouns are important because he's being pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So it's not him. He's not being crushed for his own sin. He's being crushed for the sins of another. Right. And it's important to keep keep those pronouns in order. And so let's keep reading in Isaiah 53. And verse 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, important word, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. So, just thinking about this, uh, when we hear the word "cut off," why is that? An imp- why would that be an important word?
0: Well, we often don't understand that because we're not um, as familiar with our Old Testament. But it's a covenant term. It's the whole idea of being cut off from God's. Covenant. Like in the Old Testament, when somebody was cut off from the nation of Israel, it meant they were banished, they were exiled, they were taken outside the camp, they may have been stoned, they may have gone to a city of refuge, but because of such grievous sin, they were cut off from the community. They were not part of the covenant community because of sin.
1: Right, and we're reading that this suffering servant was in was dead. He had died at this we're reading that he is dead at this point and that his grave is with the, the wicked. So there's an identification here that, that he's being treated as if he was a sinner. Yes. And then we read that there was, that he had done nothing wrong. Uh, we get this in, indication at the end of verse 9. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. So he, he was died. He's died. He's suffered. He's been cut off. And he's in this grave, not for his own sin, but for the sins of other people. Exactly. All right. And then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he is put into grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall come, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, let's pause there. Whose will is this?
0: It's the will of the Lord, God, the Father.
1: Right. And it's his will to crush him his his and he has put him to to grief and his soul makes an offering for guilt so so here we have the the suffering servant that is the lord's will who is dying in our place and his he is making an offering for guilt he is atoning for sins through his death and this is the the lord's will and then we read that god is going to be satisfied with this sacrifice which is a great encouragement to us. It's not like we have to do something. This is earned for us by this suffering servant. Right,
0: and it's interesting too, he will be satisfied. And notice what it says there um, in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Have you ever stopped and thought about when, when the suffering service Jesus is dying on the cross, he shall see his offspring. What does that really mean? What's he seeing in those moments of dying on the cross?
1: Right. Well, we mentioned the word imputation earlier, and we have imputation here, where he has been imputed to our sins. So when he's seeing our, us as his offspring, our sins have been imputed to, to Christ. Our sins have been imputed to this suffering servant.
0: So it means that something literally happened on the cross that was not a potential or a hypothetical. There was actually an imputation of sin to a particular people because there's offspring.
1: Right. Yeah, and and it's and then conversely we have imputation in verse 11. Exactly. We have by the by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So again, so here we kind of get the other side of it. So Jesus on the cross takes all of our sins, but we also receive his righteousness.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, of 2 Corinthians 5:21, for our sake there's the pair preposition in the Greek text, in our place, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think that one passage of Scripture in Paul synthesizes everything that Isaiah 53 is saying from a New Testament perspective.
1: Right, and we forget that our New Testament authors, with the exception of Luke, were Jews. Yeah. You know, so they knew their Old Testament. <laughs> exactly. So, so they would probably be thinking in these terms. So let's finish the chapter. It says this, Therefore... I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, he's being identified with transgressors. He died, and he bore the sin of many. But also interesting, he's making intercession. So what? what is intercession?
0: Well, we've talked about about this on the podcast multiple times that... um, it goes back to the whole high priestly office of Jesus, that the priest made atonement for sins and at the same time interceded on the behalf of the same people that he made atonement for the sins. So when Christ died on the cross, he was making atonement for our sins, but Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near. And so he is making intercession right now in heaven for those for whom he particularly died.
1: Right, and so very clearly in Isaiah... You can In Isaiah 53, you get this sense that this suffering servant died for not his sins, but for the sins of his people in our place, and we receive his righteousness. In very clear passage of Scripture that shows the atonement.
0: Yeah, and let's go back to the definition of penal substitutionary atonement. Do we, and let's just wrap this up for, this, for the sake of this podcast, because this is kind of our last passage in the Old Testament. The next one we'll move on into the New Testament. But penal substitutionary atonement, let's break down the words. Penal, meaning there's a punishment, there's some type of justice. Do we see the penal aspect in the verses that we've been looking at in the Old Testament? Was there punishment?
1: Very clearly, I would say. Very clearly, there was a punishment for sins, which we refer to as God's wrath, God's okay. judgment.
0: Okay. What about substitution? Do we see a substitution in the place of, for the sake of, for the people, in the place of?
1: Right, yeah. We, we saw that with the laying on of hands, with the Old Testament sacrificial system. In I, Isaiah 53, we, we read that uh, that it's our sins that are being given over to the suffering servant. And so, it's very through, very much throughout the Old Testament.
0: And then the idea of atonement, even the word is used, the whole idea of expiating God's wrath, covering sin, forgiving sin, sacrificing for sin.
1: Yeah, I mean, we saw that in Isaiah 6. Uh, we saw that in Psalm 79. Uh, we see that in Leviticus, all over the place. We have one day devoted to it called yes. the Day of Atonement. Yeah,
0: so the idea of penal substitutionary atonement is not just something that theologians came up with Um, Out of the blue, uh, because they really like to talk about God's wrath or they think that God is a God of cosmic child abuse. That's not why we believe that. We believe it because it emerges from the text of Scripture. We've we've just just talked about a few passages here in the Old Testament, and we haven't even gotten to the New Testament. So our theology comes from the text of Scripture. So why do we believe in penal substitutionary atonement? Not because it's a theory of the atonement, but because it's biblical. It emerges from the text of Scripture, and that's our highest authority.
1: Right, yeah, and and oftentimes someone will say, well, you just are driven there by logic. And it's like, "No, no, it's not logic that drives us there it's what the bible teaches or
0: tradition or any other presupposition you come with it
1: right and and, and this is getting to the very core of the gospel yes and so if we get if we are if we mess this up we're going to mess up the gospel and understanding what jesus really did on the cross and i don't want to mess that up if i'm going to get anything right i want to make sure i get that
0: those are good words, Andrew, to probably um, close down the podcast on. And so um, we will probably come back again and we'll look at the New Testament passages that teach upon the atonement. And so um, Andrew, thank you for being a guest on this podcast. And um, as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you want to contact me uh, with any questions or comments, you can go to seancole.net. You can find all of my contact information there, Facebook, Twitter, email. Um, you can also uh, go to iTunes and give us a review and rating if you'd so care to do that. When you do, give us a review and rating. It allows the podcast to get um, higher views. And if you appreciate this podcast, pass it on to others. Um, maybe put a shout out on Twitter or Facebook. We'd love to let more people listen to the podcast. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.